Thank you, worship team. And thank you all for helping to lead us all in worship this morning. I really was taken in by your singing this morning um, and by your, your worship of God. So thank you for being a part of that this morning. Welcome to Arriving Part 3 of what is an eight-part series um, in which we're talking about uh, this reality that there's always something more that we wish could happen in relationships, in our finances, in our business. We're always yearning for more, wanting more. Some of you, oddly enough, this week when the snow fell, you wanted more of that. The rest of you normal people were not feeling that way, all right, but there's this whole idea that there, we wish sometimes that there was something more than what we have right now, whether that's in relationship with one another or our faith with God, right? Who would ever say that we've arrived and we're at a perfect place in our faith and we have no room to grow? Who would ever say that in terms of relationships with our, our spouses or our coworkers, et cetera, or financially how we handle money that we've arrived at a place where we have no room to grow? So this whole idea of arriving um, is really a funny thing that's been kind of wired into us is what we've said since the beginning of time. And in fact, it was, we believe, God who wired into us this idea of shalom, this Old Testament word that means more than peace, and it's more than a ceasefire in the Middle East, right? It's more than we stop shooting at each other, and it's more of this idea of fullness and wholeness of life, the idea that we have arrived. We tried to define... Um, Shalom this way, and we said that shalom is everything being the way it's supposed to be. Now, according to God, is what we need to kind of add to that. But shalom is this full-on relational um, peace and fullness that comes with one another and with God. Now, last week when we were together, we said because it's so relational and you can't have shalom by yourself, that there is a problem, and that is that that a little thing, a little three-letter word called sin gets in the way. And what we said last week, I tried to summarize that on a slide this week by putting it this way. We said last week that sin is real and grace is real-er. It's kind of made that word up, all right? Sin is real and grace is real-er. That we talked last week, here's the deal, that sin will will, will promise you there's a quicker way to get to fullness. There's a quicker way to be happy. There's a quicker way to find joy in this relationship. There's a quicker way to find whatever you need. And it will promise you that, but it will always deliver the stealing or the vandalism of shalom in your life. And so if that is true, if that principle is true, that sin will always steal shalom from you, that if we can see sin in our own lives and we see that we might make a choice for sin, it helps with clarity to see, okay, if I'm going to choose this response to my spouse or to my classmate or to my boss or to whoever, if I'm going to choose that, and if that is sin, that will only deliver to me, it will not deliver the happiness or satisfaction or joy that I want. In fact, it will deliver quite the opposite of that. So sin is real, but then we also said this, that grace is realer. And we talked about this reality that in, in Isaiah, uh, the prophet Isaiah writes about how Jesus was going to come and he was going to be sacrificed on the cross and he would go to the death and sin does not do that but grace does and grace is stronger than the reality of sin. Now this week I want to take this a little bit further. This week I want to speak to you in a little more, um, 
uh, practical way, if you will, a little more hands-on way, uh, a little more, let's kind of get down and dirty with how we actually live and talk about our week and how we interact with people. So a little more um, concrete where the rubber meets the road this week. Um, because here's the question, if sin is a part of life, um, and it's a part of all of our lives, and we live in a broken world, then the question becomes this question, how do we cope with the chaos that sin brings? How do we cope with the chaos that sin brings? And today is really want to talk about this question of how do we handle the, the chaos that sin brings? So in other words, um, have you ever met somebody who is, let's say, constantly busy? Who's answer to the question, how are you doing? Oh, I'm so busy, I'm so tired, I'm so, so. Ever, ever meet somebody like that? Let's do audience participation this morning. <clears throat> Let's do a hand up if you know someone who's always busy. All right? Let's do a hand up if you've never met anybody like that. All right. So here's the reality. There can be, now sometimes we're busy, I get that, all right? Now, now there can be, however, this reality that we feel this constant this, this, just this heaviness, this general heaviness of life that comes on us from the chaos that sin brings. Some of it is our issue and some of it isn't. Some of it is living in the broken world and some of it is making bad choices. But some of us, we, we live with this constant feeling of there's so much stress, we're so busy, and I don't know how to get ahead of or on top of this or that, but things are just heavy and hard. I have anxiety, okay? I'm worrying about my marriage. I'm worrying about my children. I'm worrying about my health and my future. I have fear about what might come. Let's talk reality now. I have fear about what cancer might bring to my life and to my family, okay? I have fear for what getting old will look like, okay? And I'm, I'm anxious about that. I have anxiety over these issues. I'm I'm impatient, and I'm not going to maybe use that word impatient, but for whatever reason, my wife gets under my skin, and my husband gets under my skin, and oh, things were just easier at home, and there's just a tension and a chaos and a stress. There's sleepless nights sometimes, right? There's sleepless nights. There's headaches that come. There's physical unhealth that comes just generally from the pressure and the weight of life that comes on us. And so the question is, how do we deal, how do we cope with the chaos that sin can bring into this world. Now, let me be clear at the beginning that, that sin always leads to brokenness, but not every broken piece is a direct result of sin. In other words, if you have cancer here this morning, the first question is not, where did I sin, but what do I do now? And the same thing that Jesus encountered with the disciples in the New Testament. They ran into a guy who was born, who was born blind, and the disciples said to Jesus, well, who sinned, this, this guy or his parents sinned? And he said, well, neither one of them sinned. You have it wrong. There's not a direct tie from sin to, to brokenness, but every time, or from brokenness to sin, but every time we sin, there's brokenness, but not all brokenness is a direct result of sin, if you get what I'm saying. So this morning, I want to talk about how do we cope, okay, how do we cope with our own shortcomings? How do we cope when we know that we've even failed ourselves? How do we cope when we know that we've failed our spouse? How do we cope when we know that we've been impatient again, that we've lusted again, that we've fallen into temptation again? How do we cope when we know that we didn't handle the employee well, that we've been short in our business? How do we cope when we know we've actually bullied somebody, that we've deceived somebody else? How do we deal with 
the feelings as a parent that I'm not giving my children quite enough. As a single person, the, the leaning into the anxiety of maybe I'll never date and never marry and I, and I wish I would, but I'm angry with God and I feel upset about that. How do I deal with, how do I cope with the feelings and the stuff that comes and the kind of the chaos that, that sin can bring, the anxiety, the fear, the worry that, that comes with that? How do I deal with it? What is my response to it? How do I actually deal with that on a daily and regular basis? And I want to talk about that. And I want to say this, that we've actually been shaped by our parents and how we do that. Not only our parents, but our grandparents. Not only our grandparents, but our great-grandparents. Not only our great-grandparents, but our great-great-great-great-great-great-great keep going on greats for a long time until you get to the final grandparents whose names actually happen to be Adam and Eve. And their story of how they cope with their sin is very, very telling for me and for you on how we still cope with the chaos that sin brings into your life and into my life. So I'd like to go there this morning with you. If you have a Bible, I invite you to turn to the very first book of the Bible, Genesis. Genesis chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible with you, not a problem. There's one hanging out near you in the, the pew around you. It's that red book. Just turn to the very first book, uh, very first uh, book of the Bible called Genesis, and we'll be right in chapter 3. And by the way, if you don't own a Bible, that's our gift to you this morning um, to have, because uh, we actually believe the Bible is God's word given to us for life uh, and for finding truth and learning more about who he is and who we are. So we want to give that to you as our gift if you don't have one. All right. So we're going to read Genesis chapter 3, verses 6 to 13 this morning. So, uh, so here we go from the NIV. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. And then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. And then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? And he answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and so I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And the man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. And then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. All right? That's going to be our section that we're going to look at this morning. Looking at our great, 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 infinitely great, okay, grandparents, Adam and Eve, and how they first coped with the problem of sin in an ideal environment. How in the world did they do that? How did they deal with this? And the first thing we see is this, with Adam and Eve. Indifference allows sin to settle in. Now, check this out for a minute. Um, go back to verse 6. So the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom. So she took some and ate it. And then she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Now, I don't know how much you've ever pressed this out, but just think about this for a minute. Adam is pictured here as a guy who is just there. He's not vocal He's not leading anything. He's quite passive. He's quite indifferent. He's quite reactionary. He's like, eh, look at that. She ate the fruit. She didn't keel over. She's offering me some. Why not? It looks good. I'll eat some. The indifference that he has to this issue is quite 
telling. And isn't this, isn't this where this sin begins? Isn't this for you and for me where we also struggle? It starts here, doesn't it? It starts with the indifference towards the impact that sin actually will make. In other words, I don't believe that by stepping into impatience, by not doing what I should do, by being a little short with you or, or stepping into temptation that comes, I don't actually believe that that's actually going to result in what it will result in. I become indifferent toward it, and here's the excuses that, that I make. Everybody else does it. I'm really tired. It's her turn now. They need to be responsible too. They should know better. It's not that big a deal. No one will know. And I become indifferent. Or, hey, this is a good one. It's in my family. We're just all this way. It just, that's part of being a Rogers or whatever. It's part of being a, you name it, right? Part of being Phil in your last name. Just, it's in our family. You know, we're angry people. I don't know. Just deal with it. You know, like, whoa, whoa, whoa easy. Okay. So we become indifferent. We become desensitized to the reality that sin exists. And this is where it really starts is this indifference. It's like, I, it just doesn't matter. But we just stand there as sin is put right in front of us. And we just don't think it's that big a deal. And this is where, where it starts. Like, it's just not that big a deal that I don't love my wife as, as I'm supposed to. I mean, who does, right? I mean, who does? So how big a deal is that, you know, really? How big a deal is it that I'm not really, you know, pure in all of my thoughts, just most of them? I mean, who is pure in all their thoughts anyway? I mean, how big a deal is that, you know? How big a deal is it that I don't actually do the things that I know I should do? So the indifference comes in, and this is this indifference that, that Adam has here toward this issue just allows sin to come, come right in, just allows it to come in. I mean, who's going to find out anyway, and is it really going to lead to failure? I, I don't know. So here's the deal. So he, he allows it to happen, indifference comes in, and he eats the fruit. And then check out verse 7. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized that they were naked. And so they sewed fig leaves together. So here's what happens next. We feel vulnerable when we see our sin. You ever felt this way? Then the eyes, after they took the fruit, then the eyes of both of them were opened. And they realized that they were naked. And all of a sudden, now it's a problem to be naked. It wasn't before. And why why is it different? Because now, all of a sudden, they feel extremely vulnerable and extremely shameful. All of a sudden... You see, you ever, you ever been there? All of a sudden you see your sin for what it is. All of a sudden you realize, isn't this the truth, that we all know who we really are when we put our head down on the pillow at night and, and we don't want someone else really knowing that part of us? You know, isn't it true that if, if you actually knew who I really was, I would, it would, the thought would terrify me if you were in my head and in my heart the way I'm in my head and my heart? You ever feel that way? That there's something about you when you see your own sin, when you see your own tendencies toward selfishness, toward thinking about your life first. You see your own tendencies toward, toward worry and anxiety. You see your own tendencies toward, toward moral impurity. You see that and you step into that and you realize, man, I am such a failure. I, I am such a sinner. 
I mean, men in the Bible have had these same experiences. David writes in the Psalms about, you know, what is man that you are mindful of him? Paul, one of the, the greatest missionaries of all time, wrote um, that he is the chief of all sinners. That sin, when we actually see it, makes us feel incredibly vulnerable. It makes us feel very weak. It makes us feel ashamed of who we are. And because we're human, our default desire is to do the same thing that Adam and Eve did next. And that carries on in verse 7. The, the next thing we do, whenever we feel that vulnerability, whenever we feel that way, is we want to protect ourselves. And so here's what they do next. They sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. And so here's the deal. We try to save ourselves from our own shame. And this is what Adam and Eve did. We try to save ourselves from the thing that we fell into. We try to save ourselves from the things that we can't. And here's where it really the rubber really meets the road now, if you'll come with me on, on this journey, that when we see our sin and we know it, you could actually name your issues right now, the things that just keep hitting away at you, the things that you keep worrying about and you keep wrestling with, you, you, you already know those in your mind. You live with yourself, all right? You already know the deal. But here's what we try to do. We try to save ourselves from it. And so this is where we become super busy people. We become interested in distraction that will keep us from having to deal with what really is going on. We become addicted, some of us, like, like me, all right, we become addicted to productivity and achievement and needing people to acknowledge that achievement and productivity have happened to feel good because it's part of a self-salvation project. Some of us become addicted to hobbies and the, 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 glimmer, the, uh, the, the glitz and the glamour of, of um, you know, buying new things or trying new stuff or extreme sports or you know, extreme reading. I just made that up. It doesn't exist. But, but hobbies, interests that distract us from what we actually need to deal with. We can become disconnected people who start to lose a connectivity, an emotional connectivity to people who are important to us. We can say part of, part of controlling our environment is to begin not to care about it because it's too painful. So part of controlling the marriage or the, the, the dating relationship or your, your time at work or whatever is to say, it doesn't really impact me. I'm bigger than that, whatever. I'm, you can do what you want to do. I'll do what I want to do. And you become emotionally detached from it. The other side is to go to anger and to get so mad at people and to, to kind of flip out, if you want to call it that way. And all of these reactions are part of the self-salvation project. In other words, I'm going to do whatever I can. I'm either going to attack you or run from you, be distracted, or try to accomplish things or focus on my image and my beauty, my strength, so that I have something that you will look at me and you will think better of me. But I'm all the time trying to sew fig leaves together and make myself presentable to somebody because I know how much of a failure I am anyway because sin has already cut me to the core and now I'm trying to save myself because if you actually knew what I know about me, you're not going to want to be around me. And so I need to save myself from that. And this is why some people, and this is why some people refuse, absolutely refuse to do things like go to counseling because you still want to save yourself. Because you know that it would be a good idea to talk somebody in your head, but you still think that you can talk yourself out of what you were not able to talk yourself out of. You still think you can save yourself from that which you can't save yourself. 
Because the idea of counseling would mean that you'd have to acknowledge that there's a failure or sin or whatever in your life and that's just too much and so you want to continue to try to save yourself. This is what we do. So we sew these fig leaves together and do the best we can to try to put it together and we all come together and, with our fig leaves and say, here's my self-salvation project. Here's, here's who I am. Do you like me? Let me post me on Instagram. I need to get a lot of likes. Let me post my picture on, on Facebook. Let me, let me Snapchat this thing for you so, because I'm, I'm putting fig leaves together on my life because I don't really want you to know who I really am, so I'm going to kind of give to you an image of what I want because I'm putting together my fig leaves. I want to save myself. I want my reputation to be right. This is what Adam and Eve do. When we feel the vulnerability that sin brings to us, it is such a vulnerability, it's such a shame, isn't it? It, it is such a fear, if you, if you could be honest even this morning, it's such a fear to imagine, what if we could know every thought you had just this morning? And it scrolled down the screen right behind me, and your name here is, you know, whatever is thoughts, boop, 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 boop. You're going to do whatever you can to protect yourself from the fear and the shame that will come. And this is what sin does to us. It makes us want to save ourselves. Now, check out what Adam and Eve do next into verse 8. So then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Now, what should they have done? Here comes, here comes God pictured walking through the garden in the cool of the day. Adam and Eve have just fallen into sin. They've tried to save themselves by sewing fig leaves together and covering their shame. And the only one who can save them, they hide from. Isn't that true? The only, the only one who can actually restore them to shalom and fullness and wholeness, they're intimidated by. Have you ever been intimidated by the holiness of God? You ever in, been intimidated by the power of this God that we worship? So much so that you think there's no way that he could listen to or care for my shame and guilt? He's such a holy God. He must be so tired of my failures. I do this all the time. I am so whatever. I keep falling into whatever. I keep going this way. Man, I, if God were walking down my street in the middle of whatever I'm doing, I'm hiding too. You know, where, where's the nearest, you know? bomb shelter that I can get to because I want to run from God. And so here's what we see, that we run from the very thing that we need. We just run from the very thing that we need. And you know people like this, don't you? You know people and you look at their lives and you think, I know what they need. I know what they need. They need a healthy relationship, someone they can talk to and engage in. They need a time of confession, wholeness, not for guilt and shame, but they need, they need God in their lives. And we know people like that, right? It's just hard to see it when it's us. Because when we feel the deep shame and guilt of sin, and we want to sew the fig leaves together, save ourselves from one another so no one else thinks I'm that bad, work on you know, being super busy or super detached from life, and then I want to run from the very thing that I need. I want to run from the God that I need. I'm intimidated by his holiness. And then finally, we see what Adam and Eve do as, as the text continues. The Lord God called to the man. He said, where are you in verse 9? As if he didn't know. But verse 10, Adam answers, I heard you 
And I was afraid because I was naked and so I hid. Now, you ever as a kid give away something you shouldn't have given away in the middle of trying to uh, fool your parents? So Adam does this. He's like, I was afraid because I was naked. And, and God said, well, who told you that you were naked? Oh, man, I shouldn't have said that. I mean, I mean, I wasn't, uh, okay, too far. I've already said it, all right? So uh, God goes, hey, have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? Of course, knowing the answer to that question as well. And the man said, and this really gets really awesome at this point. The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. And then the Lord God said to the woman, what is it you have done? And the woman said, who else can I blame? Let me go to the serpent, all right? The serpent deceived me, and I ate. And so here's the last thing that we tend to do. We blame when we feel cornered. With the sin in our lives, after we try to save ourselves from it, and we're trying to hide from the very person that we need, when we feel like we're stuck on it, we are going to blame away. It is not my fault that I get angry. It's that leader who does that. If my wife weren't, then I wouldn't. I mean, I'm not trying to blame her, but I mean, come on, seriously, have you tried to live with someone like that? My husband, I mean, are you kidding me? He, he's a hard worker, but he's just not home, and he's emotionally disconnected, and he, doesn't, he hasn't told me that he loves me, or, you know, done a, we haven't had a date for like 23 years. I mean, so what, kind, what do you expect me to do? I mean, I'm trying to love him, but, I mean, seriously? I mean, my kids are, well, have you met my kids? You know, wow, they're, and you want me to do what? To nurture and care for them? So, so I'm single, and this guy, what's wrong with men anyway? All right, what's wrong with all these men? They just keep, all they want is this and that. And my boss, you don't know my boss, I'm telling you. <laughs> if he knew what it was like to work here, if he knew what it was like when he asked us to do overtime, and if he knew what it was like actually to go out on the job site when it was rainy like that and to try to make that customer happy, I mean, are you kidding me? If my boss only knew you know, what was going on. And, and what we do is we just try to basically take this last vestige of respect that we have for ourselves and we just push it off on other people and say, I'm not to blame. The woman you put here with me, she gave it to me. The serpent, it's got to be his fault. And it's not me. It can't be me because if it's me, I've got to own it. And if I own it, then things have to change. And I'm not ready to own it because I don't sin after all because I'm pretty good at saving myself. And here's, here's the foolishness that that is. If, if it's true that sin always promises a quicker route to fullness but always delivers emptiness and brokenness, then we have, we, we've got a problem. We, we've got we've to own that reality. And it's just so hard, isn't it? It's just so hard. It's so hard to see and own the sin that's there because of the great shame and the pushback that we feel. And so what do we do with it? What do we do? If this is how... This is how we, as a human race, were launched into the world, which we were. This is then going to be somewhat intrinsic for all of us. This will be a general human response across the board, across the generations, across the continents, right? just in the human race in general, that what Adam and Eve do in response to sin is try to protect their own dignity, save themselves, run from what they need, and blame other people. That tends to be our coping mechanisms and how we deal with sin. And then we wonder along the way, why is life not fulfilling? Then we begin to wonder, and we don't put it in these terms, but where is shalom, right? Why am I constantly busy? Why am I constantly stressed? Why are relationships not working out? Why do I have a shortfall of money? And we get confused because we don't know why. 
I don't know why. If I could know why, I would stop it. I mean, wouldn't you? And if it's true we live in this broken world, the coping mechanisms that we use for handling the brokenness around us are super important for us to understand. That if this is how Adam and Eve responded, it is by default how we are going to have to fight against responding as well. Because our first response is going to be, oh no, I ate the fruit and now I'm naked. And I'm ashamed. I can't stand in front of you like that. And so I've got to cover up. And I'm going to show to you that I'm good at something or I'm busy at something or I'm going to be angry with you or I'm going to detach from you and I'm going to try to save myself from this shame. And I'm certainly going to run from the very thing that I need, which is confession and a relationship with God. And I will definitively blame you if you come too hard after me. Otherwise, everything's good. And this is our response. So what in the world are we supposed to do? What in the world do we do? How can we replace those default behaviors with something else? And this is where, this is where the picture of Jesus comes back into play. Right? This is where redemption comes back into play. And I want to give you a quote here from a guy named Henry Nouwen. He wrote a book called The Wounded Healer. And he really highlights something very important for us because the question is, is there another way to cope with the brokenness of sin? And here's what he says about this. He said, nobody escapes being wounded. We all are wounded people, whether physically, emotionally, mentally, or spiritually. No. Do you agree with that? (laughs) Do you agree with that? We We are all wounded people. We have all hurt one another or been hurt by one another. We in order to continue on with what now and is saying, we just need to pause and, and own this for a minute. That we are hurt people, that we hurt one another without trying, that we have hurts that exist within our lives that just are part of reality. We've been hurt either emotionally, physically, mentally, or spiritually. And this is part of our history and part of how we will continue to bump into each other, to poke at each other, to cause each other to bleed or whatever. We're going we're gonna to hurt each other. We're, we all have these wounds from the past. Now, he continues this way. The main question is not, how can we hide our wounds so we don't have to be embarrassed? But, how can we put our woundedness into the service of others? This question flips everything that you tend to think about by default on its head. Because by default, I'm going to ask the question, I've been hurt, I'm ashamed of that pain, or I created the pain perhaps, and I want to hide from what I created, or I want to pull back from the pain that I'm experiencing. And now one is making the point, the question isn't how can I hide from this anymore, but how can I put the woundedness or the pain that I've experienced into the service of others? So for example, we respect people like this. We just don't like to be the people. So for example... When you hear stories of marriages where the husband cheated on the wife or the wife cheated on the husband, and it becomes a story of redemption where they might stand up here, let's say, on a Sunday morning and tell the story of how this adultery took place, what do you say at the end of that? Shame on you. You, know, sh- you don't say shame on you. No, you're like, wow. Okay, your woundedness, your pain is bringing healing to me. You know, I, I can look out here, I can see so many of you who have gone through um, actually significant, let's talk physically or significant weight loss over the last three, four years. And it's a little funny when I talk about that at church, but it's just the reality. And people, other pastors, you know, when I mentioned this unique phenomenon at GPC, 
They're like, what's with that? I'm like, I don't know, but it's whatever it is, what it is. And here's, here's the reality. So there's physical transformation that also accompanies spiritual and relational transformation. And the, the pain and the woundedness that you had felt that you tried to hide from and tried to cover with busyness or distraction, all of a sudden you deal with head on. You're like, what's, what's behind all this? And you start to use that woundedness into the service of other people. We honor people who stand before us and say, I used to be struggling with this issue of let's just call out pornography. Let's call out immorality, sexual immorality. We honor people who are like, you know what? I, I couldn't get my way out of this, but, but here's what I'm doing to work through that. And taking the woundedness and the pain and using it into the service of other people instead of running and hiding from the shame of it all. Now and continues his quote and finishes it this way. When our wounds cease to be a source of shame and become a source of healing, we have become wounded healers. Jesus was God's wounded healer, and through his wounds, we are healed. And isn't that a biblical concept? Through his wounds, by his wounds, Isaiah will write, you are healed. It is by the wounds of Jesus, by the taking on the shame on the cross, that we are healed. It is the turning the shame into healing that changes everything about how we cope with the sin and the chaos of our lives. But it's so counterintuitive. Our intuitive response is to hide from the shame that we feel, to put up walls, to protect ourselves, to save ourselves, and to run from the very God that we need. And the gospel message is, hey, we're broken people. Let's get used to it as quickly as we can. Let's figure out a way to talk about that in as honorable and loving a way as we can, and let's love each other well through the brokenness, and by the way, through and by his wounds, you are, important word now, healed. Healed. When the shame turns to healing, we have changed. We have changed the response that we naturally feel, and we have become, what Paul writes about in 2 Corinthians, a new creature in Christ. What can we do? Let's talk practically about this just for a moment. So what can we do? Number one, let's talk. <laughs> let's talk. In other words, who can you talk to? As you're, as I, I want to recommend to you, all right, I want to recommend to you a different way to cope with the chaos around you. I want to recommend to you a different way to deal with the sin that is just a part of life and to deal with the brokenness that may not be a direct result of sin, Okay but it's just a part of your life. How do you deal with the chaos around you? Let's talk, number one. Get it out there. Put it out there. In other words, talking forces you to step into rather than back. And here's, here's the, the reality, that shame will tell you to step back. Shame will tell you, no, I'm not ready for, I'm not worthy of this. I'm gonna kinda try to get this together before I go talk to anybody. There's things I can do, I should do this. And shame will be the voice in your mind, in your heart that says, I need to protect myself from anyone ever knowing that this is who I really am. I need to protect my relationships. They can know a little bit about me, but not all that about me. And I need to protect myself. And shame will send you the message, pull back, step back, be protective, cover yourself, take care. Shame will tell you that. And grace, though, <laughs> encourages you to step in. Grace says, listen, sin is real, but grace is real-er. Sin is real, but grace is stronger. Grace will go to the death and sin will not. And so grace says, listen, 
yes, you're broken. Yes, it's a shame that you did that. Yes, people may look at you and say, boy, I can't believe you did that. And you know what? That's going to be their issue. Your freedom, your freedom from the shame will never come from running from the thing that you need. Your freedom, your emotional, relational, spiritual, physical freedom will never come by covering yourself and running into the depths of the garden and hiding from God and other people. Your freedom will never, ever, ever come from that. Your freedom will only come when you step into the grace that God provides and says, all right, here we are. I'm broken. We know it. Now let's own it. Let's step into and let's talk and put it out there. Finally, this. Our brokenness and our broken world should cause us to yearn for a God who can fix it all. Our broken world should cause us to yearn for a God who can fix it all. For the next two weeks, we're going to talk about this final point, about what does it look like in our world actually to yearn for God, to long for a God that can fix it all. These two weeks today, last Sunday, were about sin and the impact of sin and how we cope with it, how we handle it. Next two weeks are going to be about how do we actually yearn for God? What does that look like? So let me encourage you. Let's talk. This is the first step to moving past the shame and the guilt that comes with feeling that I'm never quite good enough. The shame and the guilt that comes with dealing with, with your own missed expectations, let alone the expectations that have been missed by God. Some of you may have been kicking around, boy, we need to go to a counselor, I need to have someone give me life coach advice, and for a while you've been pushing that off and saying, no, we can't do that. Let's talk. All right, let's talk. By the way... Um, there is wisdom in many counselors. Sometimes a counselor is a, is a good friend, not necessarily a professional, but sometimes professionals are very helpful and fit a great role in what we need. But let's talk, number one. Number two, step into grace. And number three, let's yearn for God. The default reaction we have to coping with sin that Adam and Eve just gave to us and passed down from the generations doesn't work. It just will never work for you. It'll never work for me. It only pushes us deeper into the garden and deeper into shame. And then we wonder, why, why in the world am I not happy? Why in the world is life not complete? Why in the world do I have anxiety? And here's what, here's what Jesus offers. By his wounds, you are healed. And when we own that and our shame becomes healing for us and others, we step into the shalom that we're made for. Let's pray together. Our good God and Heavenly Father, I pray for us as people this morning that you would give us courage to do the very hard things that are in front of us. I pray that you would give us courage to have the conversations that we have pushed off for a long time because we've just been afraid to. We've been ashamed of ourselves. We feel little in comparison to what we want to think of ourselves, let alone what we might want others to think of us. I pray that right now, Father, that your spirit would keep us from stepping back into the fears that we have held for too long. I pray that you would give the men here the courage to lead and serve well. I pray that you would give the women here the insight and wisdom to know how to serve and lead well in the capacities that they're in. I pray that you would help the 
the young adults, the high school students, junior high and elementary who are here, that you give them the savvy, the knowledge, the wisdom, the insight to know, where do I need? Where do I need to step into confession in good relationships with people? Where do I need? Where do I need to step into grace and not to step back because of the shame that I feel? Father, I pray that you would help us to be people who refuse to step back and take a couple of steps back into the garden because we're afraid of your holiness and we're afraid of your invitation. Help us to remember Help us to see and to own the truth of this last song that we're singing again, how amazing your grace is that it reaches so far. It reaches beyond the grasp of sin and your grace comes and by the wounds of your son we are healed. And give us, Father, the courage to do what we know we need to do with what we have heard this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name.